science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi, everyone. I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week's story is from Ira Flato. It was recorded in July 2016 at Union Hall in Brooklyn. In this business, as a science reporter, you are expected, they think, your audience thinks, that you're a scientist. I'm not a scientist. I mean, I, have, I was studying engineering in college, and I went to start, work at the radio station in Buffalo, where I was working at WBFO, and I wanted to go turn the dials and things, and then when I got in there, the anti-war movement, and I'm talking about the Vietnam War anti-war movement in the late 60s, was rolling into town and they wanted to hire reporters. So I volunteered to be a reporter and learned how to cover riots and things like that. Learned that a tip recorder, when you use it, is more valuable on your head, if, if you think so, but they would rather a police baton hit your head than hit the tape recorder, because it costs a lot of money to, to fix one. Um, so, so my, my boss, Mike, who became my mentor, uh, knew that I was an engineering student, and uh, he decided that we were going to go to Niagara Falls one day, and I love Niagara Falls, because if you lived in Buffalo, like I did, you knew you had to escape every now and then in Buffalo to go to some place a little more different. So we would go to Niagara Falls and look at the water, and it's very nice. You know, we weren't honeymooners, we were college students. Um, but the opportunity came to walk on Niagara Falls. And how could you turn that down, to walk on Niagara Falls? So I, I didn't understand what was going on. Well, it turns out if you look at a picture of Niagara Falls, is the falls, and there are all these rocks underneath it. And the falls are actually decaying. They're falling down. The top of the rocks are slowly decaying into a rubble at the bottom, which, left, if left alone, would become a rapids. Niagara Falls is slowly moving backwards, actually, and becoming a rapids. So they wanted to look at the rubble and see if they could clear it up or keep it as a falls forever. So to do that, they had to dry up Niagara Falls. And how do you do that? Well, upstream, you divert the water from the American Falls over to the Horseshoe Falls. How many have been to Niagara Falls? Oh, been to Niagara Falls? A few of you? A few people, right? So, you know, you go to the Canadian side, you can look at the American side, and the Canadian side has the Horseshoe Falls. Upstream, they divert the water, and lo and behold, it's dry down here, and you can walk out to the edge. You look down, you know, right up to the edge, and the rock is smooth from so many millions of years of all that water going over it. And it was just a great privilege because if you think of how many people have ever walked on Niagara Falls, maybe more people have walked on, Niagara, on the moon than have walked on Niagara Falls in that area right there where the falls was. This was in 1969 when I was still in college working on the falls. Fast 
Fast forward a few years later, it's now 1971. I'm now graduated from college, and I have joined NPR in its first year in 1971 on the air. <laughs> and, and of course, because I am the science reporter, I must be a magician and know how to do science-y things and whatever. <laughs> so, I, it's, it's now 1970, it's now 1971, and my boss, Mike, has come with me to Washington to become NP, NPR, star NPR. And he has a project he's decided, he's thinking of his Buffalo roots, he's thinking of Niagara Falls, and he says to me, Ira, I have a, I have a project I want you to work on, and I need your engineering skills for this. I said, what do you, what do you mean, Mike? You know, I don't have any engineering skills. I want to take a barrel and I want to throw it over Niagara Falls. But not just any sort of barrel. I want to put a tape recorder in the barrel so we can record what it sounds like to go over the falls in a barrel. Because very, very few people have survived to tell the tale of what that sounds like. And the reason that happens is because when you, people have thrown barrels over the falls and they never see them again. Something happens under the falls where they're staying underwater forever, almost. They pop up somewhere downstream, or the water keeps them submerged, or they're just disintegrated after all that water falls on them. So uh, we're going to try to overcome what Mother Nature has and see if we can put a tape recorder in a barrel. I said, Mike, what kind of barrel do you want me to use? He says, you're the engineer. You figure that out. So I said, okay, I looked around, I found a 55-gallon oil barrel, the kinds you see all the time, these old black barrels. We painted it orange, because we want to be able to see it, as it's in the Niagara River, which is going to be rushing down over the falls. And I get, get a barrel, I how the hell am I going to engineer this thing? So I find two rods, two long rods, that I'm going to attach to the ends of the barrel. And I'm going to make a little platform to put a Sony TC-110 tape recorder in, which was the state of the art in those days. You've seen them in the movies. And it would have a 40-minute cassette in it that we would turn on, click it, put it in, put the lids on, get down there, and throw it in the river. Okay. We'll do that, Mike. I'm now in the shop designing this thing. And we're ready. I say, Mike, I'm about ready to do this. When do you want to do this? He said, February. <laughs> you ever been to Niagara Falls in February? You know what Buffalo looks like in the winter? <laughs> well, I didn't either, because I had never, I'd been in Buffalo for four years. I'd spent, I knew what Buffalo winters were like. They're worse than Chicago in the winter. But I had never been to Niagara Falls in the winter. And when I got there in February, I was not expecting 10 feet of ice. Because all that mist that you see coming off Niagara Falls, it freezes on the surface of anything it touches. So when it's being blown backwards, it freezes on the ground. So the ground is really up here on top of 10 feet of ice. The railings, there are no railings you can see anymore if you're going to the falls. We had to go to the falls and we had to get some assistance in doing this. So who's around is crazy enough that wants to help us do throw this barrel into the river over the falls? The Canadian Park Police. They're very, very... <laughs> I said to the sergeant who was there, I said, why do you want to do this? He said, 
look around you. <laughs> what else do we have to do in the wintertime? There's not a tourist. See a tourist anywhere in this weather? No, we're sitting there just drinking coffee, you know, 12 hours a day, collecting some salad. We'd love to help you do that. I said, okay. So I said, uh, where should we drive? Now I'm asking the park police where we should drop this in. He said, well, there's a bridge upriver. You go up to, let's drive up to the bridge upriver. We'll take the barrel, you'll throw it in the river, and we'll get in my patrol car, in the squad car, and we'll go screaming down the river and watch it go over the falls. I said, that's the plan. That's a good plan. So we drove up to the bridge, went over the bridge that goes over the, the river a little bit, got out carried the big barrel, opened the lid so that we could turn on the tape recorder, pressed the record and play button. You got to do it once, right? Make sure. I've been doing this for years. Okay, you can see the little reels are rolling. Yeah, hello, test, test. It's going. It's recording. Put on the lid. Okay, snap on the lid. It's got a nice little crunchy thing. Ready to go. Throw it in the water. We throw it in the water. There it goes down the river. We jump into the cars and we're driving, driving, driving down the river. We get about a half a mile down the river. Where's the barrel? <laughs> I know it didn't go over the falls yet. Where's the barrel? And we look it over and there's the barrel sitting in a little pool, a little eddy of water going around and round in circles, not going down the river. So I, th I said, uh-oh. The sergeant says, want me to get the barrel? <laughs> I said, well, what do you want to do? I don't want to bring it out. He says, want me to throw it back in? I said, sure. So he rappels down the side of this thing like a mountain climber going down the side of the, of the ravine, and he picks up the barrel, and he says, okay, I'm throwing it back in, and he chucks it in the middle of the river again, and it goes down the river again. We jump in our cars. We start racing down, racing down the river, and we can't find the barrel again. <laughs> Where's the barrel? It's on this side in a little pool of water. <laughs> and I said, he goes in, he says, want me to get it? I, I said, you know the drill, right? <laughs> So he goes down, and he goes down to the barrel, down the ravine, rappels down the side. He picks up this big barrel, and he shakes it. And he looks up, and he, and up at me, and he says, uh-oh. And I'll never forget his words. It's loose as a goose inside that barrel. <laughs> what do you want me to do? I said, I looked at my watch. I said, I could do one of two things. It's now 45 minutes after I press the record button. The tape recorder is not going to be recording anything. Even if we get this barrel in the river, it's never getting the sound of what it sounds like to go over the falls because it's run out of tape. What should we do, Mike? Should we go, well, I don't know what do you think we should do. Let's, let's try to salvage this thing. Let's see what we can do out of it. All right bring the barrel out of the river. And we bring the barrel out of the river. And I remember an old classmate of mine from the radio station is the head of Eyewitness News on Channel 7 as TV reporter. I get, I call him on the phone. I said, come on down here. We've got a scoop for you about two crazy people throwing a barrel in the river. <laughs> and no one else is going to have this story. 
sure enough, he comes down with his eyewitness news crew, and we pulled the big orange barrel outside. And uh, he's got his cameras rolling, and he's taping the whole thing. And I open the lid, and I pull out the tape recorder, and he, I said, what do you want me to do? He says, let's listen to it. And we go, and he says, now we're on camera, and he says, what does that sound like to you guys? And I said, sounds like a toilet flushing to me. <laughs> so, you know, he says, okay, let's, uh, let's, that's, that's what the quote for tonight is going to be on Eyewitness News. It's going to sound like a toilet flushing. So we, we, we get, we, we're freezing. I've been out here like 10 hours doing this thing. We're really freezing. And he gets home, drives home with his, with his news story. We go up to the coffee shop at the, uh, on the Canadian side, sitting there freezing. And Mike, Mike says to me, um, and, and all the police, they're also drinking hot chocolate. We're drinking hot coffee. And Mike says to me, um, Shouldn't we give the fellows a little something, you know, something? They've been here all day long. Shouldn't we, you know, give them a little cash or something? I, and I said, Mike, these are the cops. This is the police. Are <laughs> they making money? We can't give them anything. You know, we can't give them anything. I said, he said, all right, you know. And, and meanwhile, the sergeant is over there, and we're huddling, and he comes over to us, and he says, gentlemen, did you have a good time today? I said, yes, we, we got finished, but we did. I want to thank you guys for, you know, helping us out, and it's great that you could help us. He said, well, you know, um, uh, mm, the fellas, they worked very hard. You know, they, <laughs> they worked overtime today, very hard, and um, is there a little something you could do for them? I said, looked at Mike and said, Mike, you were right, you know, he was right. So I said, well, what do you think they, we could do for them? And he says, you know, um, um, how about a couple of bottles? Now, if you know Canada, liquor is very expensive compared to the States in Canada. It's like double the price. So a bottle of scotch is probably, back even in those days, like $50 a bottle. So there's the gift shop right there. And it was duty-free gift shop. And so we, we said to, I said to Mike, okay, let's see if we, you know, let's give him a little liquor. And we gave him, gave him a couple of bottles of booze. And they were, they were very, very happy. And we went home to get, get warm, and, and Mike was very happy that he, being a Buffalonian, he could hold his head high and having helped out the Canadian police. So <laughs> we never did get the barrel over the water. But one thing I did learn was the, in my career, I started my career, um, was the value of a good demonstration, of a good project, and how a great prop worked. And I, I kept that with me all the years that I was a reporter. And I'll share with you one other story about that, that became one of the most famous stories that NPR ever had. And that was the tale uh, from, from this of the wintergreen lifesavers. I had been a reporter after that, and I realized this is a great way that NPR would love to have these kinds of stories. So I kept on my eye looking out for a good story to do. And I had a letter from a woman in Baltimore who said, you know, my kids go into a closet every night, and I asked them being 
being a modern mother, I'm not prying too much. I say, what are you doing in the closet? And they say, oh, nothing, Mom. We're chewing wintergreen lifesavers because they spark in the dark. I said, they what? They spark? She said, you're a science reporter. I heard all the stuff that you do. You're a science reporter. You must be a genius. Could you figure out whether this is real or not? And I put this pushpin on my, my table for my desk for about a year until I was a host of All Things Considered one day. And I said, today is the day we're going to solve this problem. <laughs> So I said, the first thing I have to do is see if this is true or not. How do you do that? Well, I'm going to go in the bathroom in the mirror, and you can all try this. Go in the bathroom in the mirror. I had to go find some wintergreen lifesavers and take one out. And in the mirror, in the dark, with your mouth, you get used to the dark for about 10 minutes. You crunch it and look in the mirror. And sure enough, you'll see this little green spark of wintergreen lifesaver crunching. And now that I knew that happened, I said, how do I do this on the radio? So I first thing I do is I call up the wintergreen people, the lifesaver people they are in Connecticut. And I say, do you know why this stuff happens? And they deny any knowledge of it as if I'm asking them about a crime, you know? <laughs> as if I'm going to sue them for sparks that go off in your mouth or something like this about lifesavers. So they said, we don't know anything about it. Don't call us up. So I said, what do I want to know about it? So I, you know, I, this is a way in the day before the internet. There's no way of doing this. So I said, to, I said to Susan Stamberg, who was the co-host, the very famous woman of, of, of NPR, I said, we're going to end the show with you sparking these in the dark with me in a closet. We're going to end the show in the closet, chewing wintergreen lifesavers. <laughs> is that really? I said, yeah, we'll just humor me here. This is going to work, you know. So that, that night, we, we, we go into the closet at the end of the show, and I didn't want to show her this in advance, so I put a lifesaver in my mouth, and I chew it, and she says, oh, I, I saw that. I saw that. I said, I hope so, because, you know, it's real. And she said, do you know why that happened? And I said, I don't. I've only had like three hours to work on this, and no one will even admit it happens in the Lifesaver people. But I'm sure by tomorrow we will know what happens because our listeners are smart people, right? They'll, they'll call up and tell us. And sure enough, the next day the phone starts ringing off the hook talking about the Lifesavers. Uh, that's actually sugar. Sugar has a crystal. When you crunch on the crystal, this piezoelectric thing happens. The crystal breaks, gives off this giant voltage and a... In the ultraviolet range, you can't see it. It's the wintergreen impurity that makes it fluoresce back down to where you could see it as green. And that's why, and then people call, science teachers call up and say, you know, Roger Bacon used to write about this 300 years ago when you had sugar in the dark. You didn't have sugar in a cube. You had sugar in your basement. And when you went into the basement, you had an awl. And you went in, you hacked on the sugar. And sure enough, you broke all those crystals. They saw this light all the time. In the dark, they knew, everybody knew about this. Only a stupid modern people didn't know anything about this. <laughs> it's called triboluminescence. There's an actual technical term for that. So, I, I said, I, now I have something to talk about when I go on the radio. I go on, I'm getting ready to go on the radio. And my secretary next to me, she said, I'm getting ready to go into the studio. And she says, you got to take this phone call. I said, I can't, I can't, I had a thousand phone calls today, not one more. Got to take this phone call. She says, no, no, you got to talk to this woman. I said, okay. 
Hello, what's going on? She says, I, I heard your story last night about going into the closet with the lifesavers. I took my kid into the closet with me, and sure enough, you were absolutely right. We were sitting there sparking those lifesavers. I said, so great, so why are you calling me? She said, I gotta warn you, we locked ourselves in the closet. <laughs> And we had the carpet that came up to the floor, you know, right to the door. We were going to suffocate. It's lucky that the radio show was on at 5 o'clock in the afternoon when my husband comes home. And we were banging on that door, and he, lucky he was driving up. And if he hadn't heard us banging, we'd all be dead today. And I, 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 I panicked because I could see headlines all across America. Some weird cult is killing people in their closets they're found dead with life's nothing but lifesavers there you know and there's no reason why they're in the closet killing themselves so i said thank you for thank you for doing that for telling me and calling me up I, i'm going to warn people so we went on the radio and we did a follow-up and i said susan there's something got to tell you i figured out why this happened we went through the definition and explanation i said but the more important thing is don't go in the closet and, you, and chew the lifesavers. If you have to do it, go into the bathroom like I did where you can unlock the door by yourself and look in the mirror and chew those lifesavers. And that's what they did. This story got more mail on NPR for the next 10 years. People still come up to me and talk about this story than any other story on politics, aside, water, whatever it was, it got more mail uh, than it ever was. And, and the coda, the final story, to the episode here is I'm sitting home one day and I'm watching television and I'm watching a commercial for Lifesavers. And what do they say? These are the things that spark in the dark. <laughs> Thank you very much for... That was Ira Flato, an award-winning science correspondent and TV journalist. Ira is the host of Science Friday, heard weekly on PRI, Public Radio International, and online. He anchors the show each Friday, bringing radio and internet listeners worldwide a lively, informative discussion on science, technology, health, space, and the environment. Ira is also founder and president of the Science Friday Initiative, a 501c3 nonprofit company dedicated to creating radio, TV, and internet projects that make science user-friendly. If you enjoyed today's show or are a fan of the podcast, please consider writing us a review on iTunes. It's a great way to help new listeners find the podcast, and we love sharing these stories. We're also grateful to the support of the Simons Foundation, who helped make all of this possible. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Aaron Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Skylar Bear, Shane Hanlon, Rosie Waldron, and Liz Neely, with help from Ariel Miller. The podcast is produced by Rose Eveleth, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Union Hall for hosting the show, and to Friday for being a great day for science. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.